Phyllis Shapiro was in Texas visiting her daughter. It was New Year's Eve, 2010. I was at Laney's house in, in San Antonio. Her cell phone rang. When she answered, it was hard to make out what the person at the other end of the line was saying. Something I heard Brother Marty, and I said, just a minute, there's a bad connection, and I'm going to give you a landline. My thought was, I think I better be sitting down. I'm sure someone is calling me to tell me that my brother is dead. Phyllis hadn't spoken to her brother, Marty Markowitz, in 27 years. From time to time, she would send him cards for his birthday or for the Jewish New Year. He never responded, except once, after she'd sent him a 60th birthday card. I got back the letter that said, Mrs. Shapiro, since I expunged you from my life over 20 years ago, I don't open your mail and I erase any messages and I will take every means possible to stop you from harassing me. Up until then, I had always said to my kids, look, whatever happens, my brother needs a part of my body, he can have it. With that letter, I said to them, not even a drop of blood. I said, I don't care if he's bleeding out, he can't have a drop of my blood. Ever since then, she assumed that the next time she heard about her brother, it would be news that he had died. All I could think was, okay, I've been expecting this. This would be the call I was expecting. So I had to kind of prepare myself. And it was just going to be, resolved. okay, I'm resigned to it. Look, I've lived without him for 28 years. It'll be a different loss, but it's, it's, it's not going to be a, a recent loss. I lost him. Finally, the house phone rang. And this time, Phyllis could hear exactly who was on the other end of the line. I picked up the phone and he said, it's your brother Marty. My only thought was, he's calling me because he needs a kidney. Why would he call me unless he was desperate for some piece of my body and that only I could give him? But that's not why Marty was calling. He was calling because after nearly three decades, he wanted a sister again. have an FSA? Those flexible spending accounts are great ways to save on health and medical supplies, but they're also use it or lose it. No one wants to lose free money, so use it at fsastore.com. FSA Store is the largest online site with over 6,100% FSA eligible products guaranteed. Ready your medicine cabinet with must-haves like Tylenol, Zyrtec, Children's Motrin, and more. Be prepared with contactless thermometers, on-the-go blood pressure monitors, and even at-home COVID testing kits. Don't forget that many ordinary, everyday purchases qualify too, like over-the-counter medications, sunscreen, heating pads, first aid kits, baby health items, and a lot more. Plus, with 24-7 expert customer support, FSAstore.com makes flex spending easy with zero guesswork and no paperwork. Head to fsastore.com and use code WONDERY to get $15 off an order of $150 or more. That's fsastore.com, code WONDERY. On the internet, you can be anyone. Some people use that power to become who they wish they were. But what happens when their little lies harm other people? MTV and Wondery present Catfish the Podcast. Hosted by award-winning filmmaker Neve Shulman, Catfish the Podcast exposes the truth and lies of online dating. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. From Wondery and Bloomberg, I'm Joe Nocera, and this is The Shrink Next Door. This is episode six, 
What did I do to you? That day on the phone, Phyllis spoke to Marty for a long time. We continued the conversation that day. I was very wary through all of this. It's interesting you've really made something of your life. Like, it was like, how could you think I wouldn't make something of my life? Like, how could you think I would have rolled over and died and not fed my children? Phyllis couldn't understand why he suddenly wanted to know about her life. Then, Marty asked to see her in person. I said, no, I'm in Texas. We don't get home till next week. He says, uh, do you work on Fridays? I said, no, actually, I don't work on Fridays. And he said, well, great. So maybe on Friday, I'll pick you up and I'll take you out to the house in the Hamptons. I'm thinking to murder me. My first thought was, you think I'm going any place with you? You're out of your mind. Were you really worried for your safety? I couldn't figure out what he would want to do with me. What was your concept behind, we haven't even seen each other, but let's, let's, let's go someplace for the weekend? Not me. Phyllis was not going to the Hamptons with Marty, but she did agree to meet him in person. When she hung up the phone in San Antonio, the first person she told was her daughter, Lainey. And she said, you're never going to guess who called me. And I might have said Marty. Because I know, like, I'm so aware of how deep of a hole that is for her. Lainey hadn't heard from Marty since her 13th birthday. And now she was an adult with kids of her own. It was hard to imagine what her uncle might be like. I was like, are you going to meet him? Like, what are you going to do? She was like, yeah. She said, you know what? I invited him to come to services. Lainey wasn't about to tell her mother not to go, but she was skeptical. I didn't know what he was going to say to her, what further damage he might do. Like, there's only so much you can take, right? I was worried about her emotionally. He hurt you so badly. Are you going to let him in? She was like, yeah, he's my brother, without missing a beat. Phyllis's other children were surprised by her attitude, too. And I just said, you know, he's my brother, and I have to give him a chance. And if he ever does this again, he will not get a second chance. Phyllis and Marty had decided to meet for coffee before going to evening service. And as he walked down the street to me in front of this coffee shop, he came over, he hugged me, and he said, um, before you say anything, I have to tell you that I've changed my will and you and your children are inheriting everything. I really could have cared less. I mean, that was like the least important thing to me. I wanted my brother back. They went inside the coffee shop, sat down at a table, and began to talk. And almost immediately, Marty began to tell her about Ike. And he said that Dr. Hershkoff had been behind this whole thing and had dictated to him whatever letters he had written. And I sort of said to, I'm a little distrustful. I, I said, you did it. I mean, you wrote them. Like, you know, like you have to still take responsibility for your part of this. But as Marty continued to talk, Phyllis's attitude softened. And he sort of outlined his story to me, that the guy had really dictated what he said and what he did and how he didn't really mean anything or whatever. And it was a little easier possibly for me to try to get back together with him, knowing that there was somebody that had kind of orchestrated this. And I said to him, why did you come to my apartment and take out all this stuff out of my apartment? Why did you go to Switzerland and clean out the bank account? And she said, I was just, <laughs> I, I have to laugh. She said, I was just trying to get your attention. <laughs> well, yeah, well, you got my attention, sister. You know, you got it. You tell her you were sorry? 
I don't remember if I said I'm sorry. You know, I don't remember. I don't remember. I just was so blown away by the fact that she was talking to me. Marty and Phyllis finished their coffee, went to synagogue, and then talked some more. We wound up talking till 3 o'clock in the morning. And we agreed that we would meet again. Pretty soon, they were getting together every few days. Lainey could see that her mother was thrilled to be talking to her brother again. Oh, I could hear it in her voice. Uh, Now Marty and I are doing this, and now we're doing that. I'm going to the movies with my brother. She was on cloud nine. Marty wanted Phyllis to come to the house in the Hamptons with him. At first, she was reluctant, but he kept pushing. But I said, you have to see this house, and it's a perfect place to spend time to get to know each other. He said, I have this house with a tennis court, with a swing, you know, whatever, swimming pool, golf course, uh, this estate in Southampton. Eventually, Phyllis agreed to go. When she arrived at the house, she saw the mailbox with the name Isaac Stevens on it and the doormat that said the Hirschkoffs. Marty led her inside. So I walked into what was the great room. It was lovely. And then I started to look around and I said, what is all of this doing on the walls? Phyllis saw Ike's picture everywhere, along with the decorations that cluttered the living room. This was before Marty had started moving things to his basement. This is when Phyllis says she really started to get what had happened to Marty. It touched my heart that first day when he was trying to say to me, somebody took over my mind. Somebody was dictating what I should do. And I really wanted to say, why didn't you stand up to him? Like, what was wrong with you? Where were you? You weren't brought up to have no mind and to and to be that gullible and that persuadable and to just take orders from somebody. As they spent more time together, Phyllis began to see glimpses of the life he'd been living. I think the first day that I was there, I look at my brother and I'm about to cook something and my brother says, oh, wait, I'll get something. And he disappears into his bedroom and he brings out some food. And I say to him, why is your food in your bedroom? He wasn't allowed to keep it in the kitchen. He had to store his own food in his own bedroom. She also saw how Ike's hold on Marty hadn't completely disappeared. And my brother was still so entrenched in believing Ike that when I said something to him about the picture with him, I think, in Brooke Shields, and he said, so we went to that dinner, and look at how fond she is of him. I said, Marty... You paid, what, $10,000 to have a table, and the stars are meant to sit at the different tables and interact with you and be in a picture. I said, of course, he puts his arm around and pulls her, and you take the picture of them close. She could have given a damn less who he was. Phyllis was happy spending time with her brother in the Hamptons' house, even if she couldn't stand those photos. Ike was kind of staring at me from all over, and that was very uncomfortable, and we immediately actually began to take stuff off the walls. I said, I can't stay here with this. But it did confirm that Ike had really taken over his life. Marty showed Phyllis around the property, the basketball court, the tennis court, the mini golf course. And I'm looking and saying, what did you need all this for? Again, it was like, what planet are you living on? Oh, I said something to him too. I said, when I saw even the tennis court, I said, so do you play tennis? He said, well, no, who would I play with? You can't play tennis by yourself. And I said, so do you use the swimming pool? He said, no, you really shouldn't swim when you're alone. Like, what do you do when you're here? Three decades is a long time, and there was a lot to catch up on. Marty had lost touch with his family, and Phyllis had to bring him up to speed on everything he'd missed. Births, marriages, 
death. I mean, there were first cousins that I really liked a lot and died during this period, and I never had a chance to say goodbye to them. Never had a chance to spend any time with them. My cousin Eric in particular, but there are other ones as well. I met Phyllis that first summer after Marty broke with Ike. He came by to introduce her to me. This is my sister, he told me. I haven't seen her in 27 years. Since then, we've gotten to know each other better. We're friendly. Dawn and I have had them over for drinks. They've let us use their tennis court. And Marty showed me his latest hobby, beekeeping. From the outside, it looks like things are back to normal between Phyllis and Marty. But Phyllis says it's different now. Marty has changed. I think he's been by himself or for so many years. He was 38 when Ike basically took over his mind until he was 68. There were really 30 years in there. And at the point at which Ike got him, he regressed him. So he was would be more like a 16-year-old than a 68-year-old with inappropriate remarks and not knowing what's appropriate and what isn't appropriate. And I don't know when you learn that lesson. Phyllis trusts that Marty can handle himself now. But there are small things that aren't quite right. He dated somebody from New Jersey for a while. And I'm not saying she was the right person or the wrong person, but at some point he talked to her about her cellulite. I, I, you know, it was, <laughs> hello, goodbye, you know? <laughs> like, like, he can be so inappropriate he doesn't realize it. The biggest thing Phyllis began to notice is that Marty is now very sensitive to any real or perceived attempt to control him. What I see is in his damaged concept of himself and his damaged concept of his relationship to the world is he has this this need to almost prove that now he's the boss. To Phyllis, it's like her brother is overcompensating for the years he spent under Ike's thumb. And I try very hard not to make any suggestions. I don't want to ever take over Ike's role of leading his life. But if I make a suggestion, he immediately says no. If I sort of ask somebody else to make that suggestion, he'll come back to me later and say, oh, someone had a really great idea. You know, we should, (laughs) okay. To me, as your next door neighbor, you do still seem very close. We are close. You know? I think we are close. And and when the kids come, that seems like a really nice thing. I guess what I think is that if Marty had never left, Mm -hmm. he would be like the grandfather. Absolutely. And that's Absolutely. never that's never going to happen it's because of, happen. because of what happened. That's right. Uh, there's always a little distance. There's always distance. But the biggest distance wasn't with the grandkids. It was with Lainey, Phyllis's daughter. In all of this talk, nobody checked in with me about how I was doing about it. So it wasn't until Marty contacted me and he was apologizing to me that I like felt it and cried. You know, I like I didn't even realize that I was I didn't know I was sad. I didn't know that I was hurt. For me, I was like, you can apologize to me, that's fine. I don't like I'm not gonna like suddenly invite you to like all my family stuff and like have you have a relationship with my kids to have you potentially disappear on them. Like whereas my brother, I think, was like open arms, you know, and my I think my sister also was open arms. And I guess that's because they didn't get the letter. The letter that Marty sent her on her 13th birthday, the one where he wrote that Phyllis had betrayed him and that he would never see them again. To me, it's the fact that I was the person who was the recipient of the letter 
made me like the emotional lightning rod for for all of this. I was the one who read it to my mom. I heard her reaction. I was the one who had to absorb that too. It took time for Lainey to trust her uncle again. And as far as letting him back in or letting that door open and walking through it, I mean, I guess I've walked through it sort of cautiously. I don't want to deny my children an opportunity to be with people who love them. People love in their own ways. And uh, that's okay. More than anything, Lainey is thrilled for her mother. I was like, damn, like she won the emotional lottery. How many people have that kind of break And then the person who did the damage comes back and apologizes. How many of us have situations like that with people who have hurt us and like all we want is a heartfelt apology and like the doors would be open again, right? She got that. That was right on the heels of me feeling protective of her meeting with him. I was so happy for her. We're brought to you in part by Bud Light Seltzer. 2020 gave us a lot of lemons. So, Bud Light Seltzer made lemonade. It's the bubbly taste of Bud Light Seltzer you know and love, packed with crisp lemonade flavor. And there's a whole flavor-packed lineup. You've got the original lemonade, black cherry, strawberry, and peach. Get them all in a variety pack and let your taste buds decide which one's your favorite. They're bold. They're refreshing. I could go on and on. And I will. Because guess what? You're getting delicious flavor all with only 100 calories and less than one gram of sugar. So next time you're gearing up for a virtual happy hour or a wild night in, again, do it with Bud Light Seltzer Lemonade. Get it delivered or find it in a store near you at BudLight.com slash delivery. One more time, that's BudLight.com slash delivery. All right, let's be real. We all know that the flip of a calendar page doesn't work the kind of magic that we want it to. But you know what does feel like magic? Coloring your hair with Madison Reed. Madison Reed is at-home hair color made easy, fun, and affordable, and you'll get beautiful results. They give you everything you need to transform your hair like a pro. There are step-by-step instructions that come with your kit, plus videos online if you're more of a visual learner. A couple of our ad producers and hosts here at Wondery have tried Madison Reed. They've all found the process to be seamless and said their hair felt healthier after they colored it. That might be because Madison Reed products are made with ingredients like argan oil and keratin with no ammonia, parabens, or sodium lauryl sulfate. If you're ready to look like you went to the salon at a fraction of the price, starting at just $22, head right now to madison-reed.com. Use our promo code THESHRINK and you'll get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit. That's promo code the shrink. Visit madison-reed.com now to find your perfect shade. That's madison-reed.com. Phyllis and Marty got to work de-iking the house. And I just said, any remnant of his has to go. And so we took down his sign from the mailbox. But it was a big project more than Marty and Phyllis together could accomplish in one weekend. When I finally emptied out the closet in Becky's room, there were 40, 50 gifts with little tags on them that would say, thank you so much for inviting us to the party, and we hope you can use this or whatever. I said to my brother, look at all these gifts that that they were getting. The guests were coming and bringing gifts to Becky and Ike. It was their party, it was their house. My brother said, you know, they never even told me that people brought gifts. I said, anything that was brought to this house was brought as a gift to the house and it's yours. 
Phyllis also found several closets full of Ike and Becky's clothes. I was ready to just donate it, but we decided we would return it to them. There were at least five full bags of just their clothing, because that was all we were returning. 365 pounds, that's exactly what they weighed. And I didn't, you know, I had them all packed up. So I called, I think I sent an email to Becky. Then she called me back. Marty was careful not to get caught up in a verbal back and forth with Ike. So I sent her an email. uh, Is anyone going to be home next week to receive some artifacts or clothing, whatever, from Southampton? And she said, well, my maid will be here on such and such a date. That's all I needed to And then she said, oh, I'll be happy. She responded by saying, I'll be happy to, to pay for it. I'll be happy to pay the bill. I looked at that as a way to, you know, engage in conversation. I'm not interested in conversing with you. I'm interested in getting this stuff out of my house and into your house. Then came the phone call. The call from Becky. I was walking in Costco. His cell phone rang. And I see my brother turn ashen. And I really thought he was going to faint. But I, I, I kind of thought that it might have been either Ike or Becky. But I heard him then say... What your husband did to me was existentially evil, and I want nothing to do with you or with him. Marty told Phyllis that Becky wanted him to return the rest of her family's things that were still in the house. And I just looked at my brother at that point, and I said, we're not returning anything to them. Nothing nothing that's in the house is theirs. Phyllis had another reason for holding on to everything. I kept insisting that this was the, was the proof. I said, I don't care how embarrassed you are. What he did was wrong. And you you need to go public with it. You need to get him, you know, sanctioned or something. Phyllis wanted justice. And so did Marty. Judith, Emily, and Sarah, the other patients I spoke to, all felt strongly that I could cross the line. But none of them ever took him to court. Nor did they report him to the authorities. Why? Every one of them told me it was because they were afraid that Ike would retaliate, publicly attack them, or find ways to damage their reputations. So they moved on, while Ike continued to practice psychiatry. But Marty was different. For starters, he had a paper trail. I really didn't realize the total picture until after 2010, when I went back and reconstructed what had happened on a check-by-check basis. Marty had saved everything, and I mean everything. First, there were his checks to Ike. Marty says he tallied $3.2 million of payments during their 29 years together. Then, there was all the money Marty spent on Ike's parties. Marty also has every check written by the Yaron Foundation, the charity he founded with Ike. Marty started adding it all up. So the foundation began in 1984, and I put in, within a few years, probably over half a million dollars. Between 1984 and 2010, when I severed my relationship with Ike, I had put in a total of $914,000. My company also contributed $70,000. So I contributed now a total of very close to a million dollars. Ike's contribution? $190,000. Yet almost all the donations Yaron made were to Ike's causes. Many of them, those charity dinners where he hobnobbed with celebrities. 
And flipping through the Arone checks, Marty found that Ike had even written three checks to Isaac Stevens, that is, to himself, using his business pseudonym. They totaled $6,000, and Marty has no idea what they were for. Ike had told me on numerous occasions that one of the hallmarks of the foundation is that whatever came in went out, that there were no administrative expenses that were taken by any executive or officer of the foundation. And when we discovered that there were three checks made out to him, that was very shocking. While Ike didn't respond to specific questions about those checks, he stated that he has never taken any money beyond his hourly fee. Even after Marty had gathered all his evidence, he wasn't sure what to do next. But he did know a few lawyers from his synagogue. Multiple lawyers told me the same thing. Well, you, you, you don't have any damages. There's no point in even thinking about suing anybody because you can't show damages. He didn't steal from you. He just got a fee for his services. None of those lawyers specialized in psychiatric malpractice. But I talked to one lawyer who does bring psychiatric malpractice lawsuits in New York State. Audrey Badolas told me that she thought Marty did have a good case, but the statute of limitations expired years ago. It may have been too late for Marty to turn to the courts, but maybe there were other ways to make his case. I wrote to the New York State Department of Health. The health department has the authority to take away a physician's license. Marty sent them a formal complaint in September 2012. I sent them a, a very detailed letter, and I offered them some preliminary evidence. About six weeks later, Marty got a response from the health department's Office of Professional Medical Conduct, the OPMC. Some nurse practitioner from the, uh, the Department of Health wrote back to me, uh, this is all very interesting. After he's criminally indicted, come back to me and we'll get his license. Uh, but uh, before that, we're, we're not interested. Basically, she said, just fluffed it right off. The letter concluded, OPMC does not have jurisdiction over the issues you have reported. So at that point, I then contacted the New York State Psychiatric Association. Actually, he sent the next letter to the New York County Psychiatric Society, which is the local affiliate of the American Psychiatric Association. I filed a very serious complaint with all of the details. And they essentially said, very nice, thank you very much. We're going to assign an investigator and investigate it. The APA followed up with Marty a few times after that, each time requesting more documentation. Finally, four years later, Marty got a letter from a Dr. Henry C. Weinstein, the chair of the Ethics Committee of the New York branch of the APA. And they said, lo and behold, we're going to have a hearing. The hearing date was in two months, June 8, 2016. And I worked very hard preparing an opening remarks, and I had all of my physical evidence, which they had had and presumably turned over, showed to the doctor. We don't actually know if any documentation was provided to Ike. But then, 
a few weeks before the scheduled hearing. I get a, a, a letter from them saying that he had resigned from the association and they, they no longer had jurisdiction. This letter also came from Dr. Weinstein. He told Marty that Ike had allowed his APA membership to lapse. He resigned not only from the New York State branch of the association, but the American Psychiatric Association as well, both branches, both psychiatric associations. The hearing was canceled. When I asked Ike about this, he responded that he had stopped paying dues to the APA back in 2011, a year before Marty submitted his allegations. He said that his decision to leave the APA was unrelated to Marty's complaint. But in Dr. Weinstein's letter to Marty, the one he wrote in 2016, he said, we take a psychiatrist's decision to leave during an ethics investigation seriously. We have made the APA aware of the complaint and Dr. Hirschkoff's decision to drop his membership after it was filed. Marty wasn't giving up. With the help of an old law school friend he had reconnected with, he went back to the New York Department of Health. My friend Jeffrey helped me craft the letter saying, your initial letter to me was completely unacceptable. And I'm going to restate the problem, the complaint, and we expect you to take action. This time, Marty outlined exactly what he believed to be misconduct. Marty wrote that Ike, acting as a psychiatrist, had convinced him to set up a foundation where Ike had carte blanche to spend the funds. He wrote that Ike had persuaded him to leave valuable real estate to Becky and that Ike had become a co-signatory on his Swiss bank account. I mean, to have a, a joint bank account with your doctor? Absurd. Marty pointed to one specific type of malpractice the law that forbids doctors from exercising undue influence on their patients. I then filed all of the documentation that I had sent to the Psychiatric Association to the New York State Health Department. They, in turn, said, thank you very much. We're going to assign an investigator to this thing. And another year goes by before I hear from them. That was back in 2016. Marty has contacted the OPMC at least five times in the three years since then. Their response is always the same. It's under investigation. They just would disappear. And uh, I would write to them a year or so later, what's going on? And they would say, well, it's under investigation. This whole process, the letters, the complaints, the follow-ups, it's just to have a hearing A committee would then hear both sides of the case and decide on a course of action. It can include anything from a reprimand to taking away a doctor's license. But to have a hearing, the Department of Health has to complete their investigation. And so far, Marty's case is still open. The OPMC publishes an annual report that includes the average length of an investigation. Last year, it was 321 days. Marty's investigation has run more than a thousand days. So why does it take an investigator so long to decide if this case is worthy of a hearing? Especially considering all the documentation Marty has provided. One recent afternoon, Marty called Jason Warren, the assistant director of investigations. Hello, this is Jason. 
Hi, Mr. Warren, this is Martin Markowitz calling. Uh, as you yep. know, we filed a complaint in 2016 about mm-hmm. my former psychiatrist, Dr. Hirschkoff, yep. and it's yep. now two years later, and yep. the last communication I have from you is dated July of last year. Just want you to know that there's a journalist listening in, and I've given him permission uh, to do so as well. So I need to know what the status of the investigation is. Okay, sir, I can't discuss uh, any of our things with a journalist. I so have given him... If, if he would like to contact the public affairs group, he can do so. Well, what can you tell me? Basically, what was in that letter. Uh, a, an investigation has been initiated. But I, uh, I have no idea what the status is at this point. No one has contacted me for an interview. And, uh, you know, I'm a bit at a loss because the last communication was July of last year. It's now April of 2019. And uh, this, this complaint has been uh, kicking around now for multiple years, three years. I understand, sir. I, and... I'll contact you later at another time, and we can discuss this. All right. I'll speak to you in the future. Okay. Bye. This guy's done nothing. He's done nothing. Just waiting for me to die and go away. A week or so after that phone call, Marty sent the health department yet another letter asking for an update. This time there was one small bit of new information. The department says that Marty's case is now being reviewed by a psychiatry expert. It's still a waiting game. We could all use a little help when things start to feel overwhelming. And stress looks different for different people. Maybe you're bogged down by your to-do list, feeling a little detached, or just feel stuck. Talkspace has thousands of licensed therapists in over 40 specialties, including depression, anxiety, relationships, and many more. Whatever you need support with, you'll have someone on your side to help you set your goals and stay accountable to achieving them. Talkspace is a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy, and instead of waiting for your appointment, you can send unlimited messages to your therapist 24-7. So you can vent anytime you need to from the comfort and convenience of your own home. Whether you prefer text, video, or voice messaging, your therapist will engage with you five days a week. Match with a licensed therapist today by going to Talkspace.com or downloading the app. As a listener of this podcast, you'll save $100 off your first month with code WONDERY. That's code WONDERY for $100 off at Talkspace.com. Hello? Yes, hello. As for Dr. Isaac Hirschkoff himself... Hi, I'm trying to reach Ike Hirschkoff. Yes, speaking. Ike is still practicing psychiatry. Last fall, as we were beginning our reporting, my producer reached him at home. Dr. Hirschkoff, um, my name is Krista Ripple. I'm a producer working for Wondery and Bloomberg Media. And I've been trying to get in touch with you because I've been talking to Marty Markowitz, and I'd love to just talk to you if you have a few minutes. Uh, unfortunately, as you can probably understand, I'm not allowed to. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, I'm, pro- I'm legally prohibited from talking to you about him. Sure. Just so you know, I'm 
I'm recording this. I'm an audio producer, but you know, I understand that Marty was a patient of yours, but I also understand that you had a business relationship and a friendship like relationship outside of outside of that therapy relationship. Okay, again, I'm not I'm not allowed to talk to you. That's all I can say. I know that Marty has given his consent. We have a release that I'd be happy to provide for you. Okay. Again, I'm not allowed to talk to you. But I I mean, you were friends for a long time. Like, hello? Federal law prohibits any doctor, including psychiatrists, from divulging information about a patient without permission. But Marty and several other former patients sent Ike letters specifically giving him permission to talk to me. Ike wouldn't agree to an interview, but he did respond in writing when I was first working on this story in 2012, and again as we were getting ready to release this series. In several lengthy emails, he denied Marty's accusations while heaping on accusations of his own against his former patient and also against me. At one point, he claimed I was motivated by jealousy because the house next door had a tennis court and mini golf course and all kinds of things, things my little tract house, as he called it, lacked. You can only imagine how that went over with my wife Dawn. But I digress. The core of Ike's defense is that he never violated the ethics of his profession. I have never slept with any patient or client. I have never dated any patient or client. I have never stolen from any patient or client. I have never attempted to steal from any patient or client. I have never violated any boundaries. This is an actor reading from Ike's letters. He'll be reading the rest of Ike's writing in this episode. Ike also rejected the idea that he had any sort of influence over Marty. Allow me to point out many inconsistencies and contradictions in his claim that I was this unscrupulous, omnipotent Svengali who completely controlled him in order to steal his fortune. Why did I limit myself to 3% of his fortune, i.e. his country home, when I could have had all $20 million? Why did I continually urge him to maintain a rigorous, healthy diet, to exercise aerobically every day, and to take vitamins and nutritional supplements if it was in my interest for him to die sooner so that I could inherit his fortune. If I controlled him, why was I unable to prevent him from ingesting his nightly pint of haagen which led to his cardiac surgery? Ike denies that he instructed Marty to do anything, end his relationship with Phyllis, write important documents, or even leave the Hamptons' property to Becky. But Ike's main defense to the allegation that he abused his position as Marty's psychiatrist was that he wasn't Marty's psychiatrist. Ike says that for most of their years together, Marty wasn't a patient, he was a business client. Marty adamantly denies this. There were no discussions about termination of my relationship with him, reforming it as a business consultation. You know, it just, none of that happened. And anyway, Ike was Marty's psychiatrist when he co-signed Marty's Swiss bank account and set up the Urone Foundation. As to why Marty would say all these things about him if they weren't true, Ike offered this explanation. Does MLM's current obsession with punishing me after we amicably parted ways strike you as normal or healthy? Which do you imagine is more likely? That he would scrupulously stick to the truth in his allegations? Or that he would embellish, distort, and falsify allegations to hurt me in any way possible? 
Although I regret and resent this ordeal, even now, I only wish MLM well. I would love nothing better than for him to spend the rest of his life healthy and happy. And there is no reason for that not to happen. Ike still sees patients in the same office where Marty first met him almost 40 years ago. He's still active in his alumni association, and he's still listed on the website of the NYU Med School as a clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry. I've seen some recent pictures of him on the internet. He's shaved his beard. One photograph was taken in May of last year. Ike is speaking from a podium wearing a blue blazer with a yellow pocket square, his arm raised as if to emphasize the point he is making. The group that had gathered that evening to hear him was the Fellowship at Auschwitz for the Study of Professional Ethics. They were giving out their annual awards for ethical leadership. Ike was the master of ceremonies. And Marty, he's never gone back to therapy. When he talks about his time with Ike, it's like he's talking about something that happened to someone else. He's never been able to explain why it took him almost 30 years to walk away from Ike Hershkoff. Now, he just wants to move on. He's still running AFC, though his longtime employees, Sam and Bruce, have retired. He travels now, something he'd stopped doing during his years with Ike. And he has something else back in his life. Happy holidays. Yes. <laughs> Marty and Phyllis spend holidays together now, like Passover. This year, Phyllis hosted a Seder for her whole family. This is Jeff. Have you met Jeff? No, this my is boyfriend Jeff. Nancy's nice boyfriend to meet Jeff. You. Very nice. Have you bumped into my brother? Uh, oh. No, I have not. It's not in the six years that we're no, back together. I saw him once on the bus. Oh. After 27 years. Yeah, I'm going to sit down here. Marty is back at the table along with two of Phyllis's three children. Lainey brought her family, and Nancy brought her boyfriend. Phyllis's longtime friend, Ann, joined, too. I think Phyllis runs the Seder from the, uh, from the chair. I'm not sure. Oh. I told her it's your show. I'm not saying a word. Oh, that's unusual. <laughs> Have you been talking to her again? <laughs> Once a week. <laughs> sometimes more, sometimes she calls me. After reading the Haggadah, the story of the Exodus, everyone gathered around the dining room table. If God had not had brought us near to Mount Sinai and not given us the law, it would have been sufficient. If God had given us the law and had not led us into the land of Israel, it would have been sufficient. If God had led us into the land of Israel and had not built the temple, it would have been sufficient. Marty has his family back. Nothing makes him happier. If I could have everyone's attention for a second, I'd just like to say a couple of words before we start our meal. Thank you, Mom, for creating this extraordinary uh, table and having us all here and welcoming us all into your home. And Marty, it's always just such a, um, you know, it still feels special having you. Well, thank you so much. And so it's, you know, it's, it's special and it's not special. Uh-huh. You know, it's like becoming not special, which is really nice. Like for a while it was like, oh, you're included in things. And I was like, yeah, Marty's going to be there, you know, <laughs> here. So that's really special. Yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge you, Mom. Thank you. Oh, man. Oh, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
put a spell on you Because you're mine I don't like the things you do Oh, baby I From Bloomberg and Wondering, this is the sixth and final episode of The Shrink Next Door, a story about power, control, and turning to the wrong person for help. If you've liked this series, please subscribe to the show and you'll be the first to hear updates, including an episode next week where I'll speak with a fellow journalist and share stories about my reporting. To see some of the photos, letters, and documents we've talked about in this series, go to Bloomberg.com slash shrinknextdoor. If you'd like to help us spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and every major listening app, as well as Wondery.com and Bloomberg.com. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes, including some details you may have missed. You'll also find some offers from our sponsors. When you support our sponsors, you help us bring you our shows for free. Another way to support us is to answer a short survey at wondery.com survey. And if you have a story for us to look into, email us at tips at wondery.com. And thank you. The Shrink Next Door was written and reported by me, Joe Nocera. Senior producer is Krista Ripple. Bloomberg's head of podcast is Francesca Levy. Fact-checking by Molly Nugent. Sound design by Jeff Schmidt. Maya Kaufman and Monica Codero-Sancho contributed reporting. The Bloomberg podcast team includes Topher Forges, Magnus Henriksen, and Laura Carlson. Thanks to Dr. Glenn Gabbard, Audrey Bedolis, Jan Wolberg, Jed Sandberg, Randy Shapiro, Jennifer Sontag, Jeff Grocott, Katie Boyce, Thomas Houston, Eugene Resnick, Stephanie Davidson, Emily Engelman, Mike Frazier, Liz Smith, Mickey Janechill, and Alex Janechill. Executive produced by George Lavender, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering. <laughs>